Welcome to the Wages of Cinema. I'm Jack, and with me is Corey. Hello, everyone. All right. Um, so, we were originally going to do a Pam Greer-related episode. We decided to put that on the back burner for a number of reasons. Um, uh, mostly for one reason I can't talk about right now until, frankly, later in the year. Um, that's all I'll say, but... You will be getting your Pam Greer episode, just probably not for a year or so. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sorry about that if you were hotly anticipating that. I'm not sure. If, there might be one guy in a basement somewhere who was like, I want my Pam Greer. <laughs> and he has that voice exactly. I want my Pam Greer. For some reason, he has like a low southern accent. Um, but instead, uh, this this idea uh, for this episode that we're going to do, uh, came, I, I should have thought of this earlier, frankly, because, you know. We're married, and I should be listening to your feelings, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I should be a great communicator. Um, but uh, no, this actually, I was reminded of this by a uh, frequent listener, Gabe Rodriguez. Thanks, Gabe. Hi, Gabe. Who gave the suggestion that Corey should talk about her favorite movies, and I thought this was a wonderful idea, so I thought we should do this. Now... We should talk about how difficult this was, though. All right. So we were going to do my top five movies of all time. And what this exercise has taught me is I really have a top three movies, and then it's madness beyond that. So... Well, yeah, I mean, I was... Well, I think even initially you weren't able to fully think of the top three movies. I had to kind of remind you, and you went, yes, yes, yes. And I was like, well, how about the other two? And you're like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's actually hard for me to come up with a list like this because I don't devote a lot of time or mental energy to constructing my all-time pantheon. But when I did this, three movies rose to the top right away. And I'm pretty confident that the top three and my top five really are my favorite movies ever. Now... Movie four and movie five might be, like, in my top five for today. Right. I don't know if they'd be in my top five next month, well, next year, next decade. Well, that's actually not terribly uncommon with certain movie people. Like, um, I remember when the Sight and Sound lists uh, came out uh, in 2012, and they do this every ten years where they can, where they ask film critics and directors all over the world to list their top 10 or favorite movies. And they're the directors and critics are allowed to put certain notes. And you see like from so many of them, they say this list is really stupid to try to condense 10 movies from all of history into your favorites. It's just a futile ex exercise. And, um, Oh yeah. Let's mention history briefly because do you know what my list will not have? What? A lot of old movies. <laughs> no, I guess not. I mean, it's not like you haven't seen any old movies. And when we talk about old movies, you mean like classic golden age Hollywood type yeah. movies? So. Yeah, so you don't. There won't be Casablanca on here. Yeah, if you're waiting for Citizen Kane, hold don't hold your breath. Every movie on my top five was made within my lifetime. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's not entirely unfair. Now, we'll also talk about some movies that we call, like, honorable mentions, which 
I guess you could say would fill out your top ten or whatever. And in fact, one of the movies that we'll be talking about is frankly really three movies. We'll just leave it at that, so it's almost kind of cheating. But, hey, it's your list. You can make it up. Yeah. Alright, but we'll talk about... Um, I don't, I don't know if we need to go in any kind of, like, numbered order or anything. We could just talk generally about these movies. Okay. Unless if you know you have a number one. Uh, I don't think you do. No. No. It's really, the movies in the top three each vie for number one. All right. So it's really like a three-way tie for my favorite movie ever. Right. So do you want to talk about the... Movies that are not in the top three first, or do you want to go right into the top three? Well, I know what I'm supposed to do to build audience interest is to count down, start honorable mention, and then well, I would talk well, five, well, four, three, two, one. Well, we'll talk about honorable mentions. I think after the main five, unless if we, we should do it the other way. But, I know it sounds like we haven't done a lot of prep for this, <laughs> which is true. Um, no, it's not. We we we've talked about this. I just want to go straight to the top three, though. <clears throat> All right, so we'll do that. All right, let's start with, um, let's talk about uh, probably the movie that you have hinted to me once or twice, that if you did a cinema immersion tank, you could see yourself doing it with this movie, which is The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> well, I basically did a cinema immersion tank with The Nightmare Before Christmas for years what's this what's this there's color everywhere what's this there's white things in the air what's this i can't believe my eyes i must be dreaming wake up jack this is what is this haven't you heard of peace on earth and goodwill toward men <laughs> touchstone pictures presents the enchanting story of two very special dreamers and the holiday spirit that brought them together. From the imagination of Tim Burton comes The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> when you say, oh, you didn't, you don't mean years. It was, it was at least one school year. Where you watch the movie every day? Well, every school day. So Monday through Friday. When wow. I was a child for at least one school year, and I feel like maybe two school years, I had a routine where I would come home from school mon every day, Monday through Friday, I would come home from school, I would have a snack, usually soft pretzels, not always, <laughs> but usually... Soft pretzels, wow. You even remember the snack food. Yeah, so normally I would come home from school, I would have a snack, and then I would watch The Nightmare Before Christmas. So, this is definitely the movie I have seen the most times. I have seen The Nightmare Before Christmas hundreds of times, easily. So, literally hundreds. Literally hundreds. Yeah, you know, you this, would, this could probably be the one movie that you could quote, like, in your sleep. Yeah. And... What, what is it about it that you love so much? Like, or what, let me put it this way. Has it changed at all, like, your love for it since you were a kid? Like, do you see anything different about it? Well, it my feelings about it probably should have changed more than they actually have <laughs> because I am an adult, and adults should think about things differently than children. So let me get into all the things that appeal to me about this film. Okay. I The songs are amazing. They're really clever. They're really catchy. 
The songs are amazing. All by Danny Elfman, who... It's it's almost... Even though it's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, we should really say it's probably really Danny Elfman's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Without Danny <laughs> Elfman, there really is no movie. It's just like Jack Skellington being a dick. <laughs> and I'm not a huge musical person. I'm not... Like, I'm not blatant. I'm not one of those people that... You're not a musical theater kid. Yeah, well, I'm also... I'm not one of those people that says, like, no musicals ever. But I'm not a big musical person. And... But the music in this movie is absolutely spectacular. And as I'm even talking about it, I have, like, three different songs from the movie running in my head simultaneously. So... The music is amazing. Yeah. Well, part of it, too, um, I think you've talked over the years, that when you were a kid, you really loved, uh, you know, uh, good like scary movies for kids or scary TV shows. Yeah. Like horror-related material for kids. I love the fact that it's claymation. Yeah, it's stop motion animation, and uh, I love yeah. stop motion animation. I know it's too labor intensive to do it very often, but I absolutely love stop motion animation. It is my favorite type of animation. Really? <laughs> yes, I prefer stop motion animation to any other type. To like regular old school animation, to Pixar animation. My absolute favorite. <laughs> type of animation is stop motion which you don't see very much because it's so hard to do yeah yeah we get you know stop motion animation movies pretty infrequently and the thing that also you you can't like we never get like a stop motion animation movie that's for adults strictly it's always it has to be for kids because you have to reach the widest possible audience so it what really thrills me about how the movie looks is when I'm watching it, I think to myself, like, this is real. These yeah. things are real. Yeah, that's that's what's yeah, you're you're seeing tangible things in front of you. It's it's basically the the when we talk about like movies and people say movies are magic, and that sounds like a mm. stuffy bullshit cliche. But in the case of stop motion, no, you're really seeing magic in front of your eyes. You're yeah. seeing things that don't really have movement unless if you are painstakingly taking one shot at a time. Yeah, and I remember years ago I saw like a little thing about the making of the movie. Yeah. And I watched the 32 movements to move Jack Skellington's mouth. Yeah. And also, um, this is going back uh, a little ways. Uh, if you want to go back into the Wages of Cinema archives, you can listen to our live show where we put Nightmare Before Christmas as uh, one of the 10 most important animated movies. And when I was doing research for that, I watched that same behind-the-scenes feature. Uh. They created literally hundreds of different faces just for Jack Skellington. So, what I love is... I love the fact that <clears throat> stop motion is so laborious. And it creates an absolutely amazing like visual experience. It creates a unique visual experience. It's something, again, you can't get this in theater. You can't get this 
elsewhere. Yeah. And also, you all at the same time, you know, there's been stop motion since uh, you know way back in the day. I mean, King Kong was uh-huh. done through stop motion animation. Uh, the original King Kong, I mean, back uh-huh. in the 30s. Um, but that was just one element, and that goes for also the Harryhausen so. things. This is an entire animated world where, you know, again, it's Tim Burton kind of taking off from the claymation specials of his youth. <laughs> you know, Rudolph and uh, and Santa Claus and all that. So, yeah, I love the fact that when I'm watching this movie, I think to myself... I can pick these things up and hold them in my hands. And I love how actual physical models look, which I think is better than how any drawing or computer simulation a person could be. So I feel like I've been kind of shallow so far because I'm talking about the movie looks amazing. The music is amazing. Let me get to... The characters, the characters have to draw you in, too. I mean, I, I, you know, Oogie Boogie, man. Oh, yes. Oogie Boogie was a beloved character of my youth. What I love about this movie is, even though you could say it doesn't have, like, Shakespearean complexity or anything, I understand where every single character is coming from in this movie. Like, I really do. I think every single character, even characters who are in direct opposition to each other, hmm. have relatable and <clears throat> believable motivations. So even, like, the Doctor and Sally. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying that the Doctor's behavior is completely moral, but yeah, and well, he's creating. He basically he created Sally for himself as like a servant. <laughs> if you think about it deeply, he creates Sally as his slave and holds that over her. <laughs> you know, I made you <laughs> with my own hands. When I, I've said this on the podcast multiple times. For me, my favorite villains are the ones that you can really see how they're the hero of their own story. Oogie Boogie is that way. Yeah, so I feel like the villains in this car- in this movie are amazing. And Well, they're having also just so much fun, too. Yeah, I well, love... Well, him especially. I love the motivations of the villains in this movie. I think... The villains are absolutely spectacular. Well, you could also say, in someone else's story, Jack Skellington is a villain. Exactly. So, I actually do think the movie is morally complex in a way that kids' movies usually aren't. Yeah, because if you told this story in a more conventional way, it would be like the kids it would start with like the kids waking up on christmas night and there's this skeleton in santa claus uh, clothes leaving completely horrific things under their tree i feel like you could make this movie with about 10 different characters as the protagonists hmm. and spin it as a potentially heroic tale. I think you could make a movie with the doctor as the protagonist where yeah. he's not the villain. Yeah. Now, what's interesting though for me, as much as you really love this movie, I don't really recall in all the years we've been together, like you were never <clears throat> the type of person who went gaga for the merchandise. Like, I don't remember you going into like Hot Topic and getting like, 
the Nightmare Before Christmas merch they always had. No, the only Nightmare Before Christmas merchandise I ever had was I had, when I was a child, I had an Oogie Boogie doll. Mm. And you know this, but I'm just telling it for the podcast listeners. The Oogie Boogie doll I had had a slit in its stomach because, you know, Oogie Boogie's filled with bugs. However, the Oogie Boogie doll I had didn't come with bugs. It was only plastic. Uh. So, I had, I also had this toy when I was a kid. It was like an Easy Bake Oven, but it wasn't for food. It was like a creepy crawler Easy Bake Oven, Uh. where you got these molds, and you filled the mold with goo, and then you put it in an oven, and it cooked basically, um, I'm trying to think of it, kind of like gummy figures yeah okay do you know what i'm talking yeah, about no, i think i know exactly what you mean so i had this oven <clears throat> where i would cook plastic toys of bugs mm-hmm. so i had my oogie boogie doll and then i would cook up some bugs and then i would stuff them in my oogie boogie doll you could have your my books so um. i love <clears throat> how i love how much like so many characters in this movie have a rich interior life. And I feel like I said a few minutes ago, oh, I don't, it's not like this movie has Shakespearean complexity, but you know what? It kind of does. Um, well, I mean, Jack Skellington's whole arc is kind of fascinating where again, he's the main character and he shouldn't be very sympathetic. His whole journey is, Oh, I'm really tired of this Halloween thing. I don't want to do it anymore. Mm. Oh my god, this Christmas thing. It's so... I want to do something with this, and I don't know what. And then it's like, no, I'll be Santa. And, you know, he's a kind of self-absorbed jerk if you really wanted to break it down. Yeah, well, even the fact that you have a pretty complicated main character. <clears throat> so I love how kind of nuanced all the characters are and i love how again you can see where every character is coming from as wrong as they may be you can say i know how a person got to this place um believing that he was right and probably the best politician character ever the mayor yes (laughs) with his literal two faces you know (laughs) i'm either very happy or very sad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but again, I can see you making like a heroic movie about the mayor as much of a worm as he is. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, I never thought. Now, here's the other thing we should bring up. I mean, we can't we could probably do an entire podcast about this one movie, but we'll need to move on to other movies. One thing that we've talked about <clears throat> over time is that it's kind of incredible that this has not been uh the type of thing that spawned you know, 10 or 20 sequels or rip-offs. Or yeah, remakes. this boggles my mind. I will say it did, I think it did get ripped off here and there, but sometimes by its own creators. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, that never happens. Not that I'm complaining, but <clears throat> it absolutely blows my mind that there were no sequels to this movie, especially because I feel like it's not hard to get to a sequel. Because you could just do a series of movies where Jack goes to the other holiday. Well, not even that. Like, even just, you know, back when we were kids, Disney would just make animated series out of anything. I mean, there was an animated series called The Gummy Bears. (laughs) And, And this, 
you know, this could have been, like, they could have probably just done, like, with Beetlejuice, they did an animated series. But for some reason, they didn't do well, it with this. I think it's because of the claymation, that it would be too difficult to do an ongoing... Oh, no, no, but I'm not, I'm not even saying that. I mean, just, you know, Disney doing a cheap, hand-drawn animation. Yeah, I'm really surprised they didn't do that, even though... I have a feeling that this might be, like, the one thing that... This is Tim Burton's uh, Star Wars. Like, this is the thing that he wants very protective of and maybe someday he'll sell all that to disney and then so, they'll yeah, just maybe take over something that makes this movie even more special is this is the <laughs> one horse hollywood has never beat to death yeah or one of them yeah this in a universe where every single movie is a remake or a sequel or a reboot or what you call it a reboot call yes i can't with that term there is no originality in Hollywood anymore. It's totally dead. Everything is an IP. Everything is a rehash. Original ideas are totally dead in Hollywood. Original ideas are not totally dead on TV, but like halfway dead. And even when you get original ideas, um, like, you know, we just uh, saw A Quiet Place and talked about that. Um, that got announced as that's going to get a sequel. How the what? fuck do you do a sequel to that? But then you have this absolutely amazing movie. Yeah. And, and it also is it, it also doesn't run too long either. It's like 75 minutes. Yeah, which it's all you need sometimes. Yeah. And of course, again, the songs, you know. Oh. So I really love the fact that you had this beautiful original film and it's just its own thing. Yeah. There are not ten sequels. There are not tie-in shows. I do believe they wrote a novelization of it. Yeah, I read that. Well, that they do yeah. that for most movies. Which I read, but... Yeah. All right, so Nightmare Before Christmas. We both love it. It's, my, it's one of my top three movies of all time. All right. Now let's move on to a very different uh, movie. Um, and this should make for an interesting discussion. Let's talk about the movie Margaret. Oh. Hey, Paul. Lisa Cohen. By any chance, would, would you want to meet somewhere and, like, take away my virginity? Um, alright. statement the light was green when the bus passed through the intersection? Yes. So you're saying she walked against the light? I know you feel a sense of responsibility about what happened, but you can't not do your homework and you can't throw away your scholarship because of it. That bus driver probably has a family to support. Do you remember me from the bus accident? It's a tragedy. You cannot bring her back. I'm talking about telling the accident investigators what really happened. But you already talked to them. I know that, but I lied. So you're going to go home, you're going to do your homework, and I'm going to lose my job. And who's going to take care of my family? You? All right, let's talk about Margaret. And how did you come upon this movie? All right, so when Margaret 
I had read a little bit about the incredibly tortured production process of Margaret. Yes. And when it came out in theaters, I didn't see it, just mm-hmm. like everybody else. So I did yes. not. I've never seen this movie in the movie theater. Then years later, it was on HBO on demand, mm. and I decided to watch it when I was home by myself, which later you were offended by. That I decided to take the cinematic journey when I was home alone. Well, it's 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 almost sad for me to admit I actually hadn't seen it yet when you watched it. I, I for some reason I hadn't gotten around to it. For some reason when it when it hit uh, when it hit theaters for like the one week it was out, I didn't see it, and I should have because the the director Kenneth Lonergan, uh, his first film. I really, really loved. Uh, it was called uh, "You Can Count on which Me," which I still haven't seen, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, and I think you would really like that movie. That's the movie that broke out both Mark Ruffalo and Laura Linney. Like they didn't, uh. they kind of had very middling careers, and then that movie kind of put them on the map. Um, and uh, Mark Ruffalo's in this movie too. So when I was watching Margaret, I hadn't seen "You Can Count on Me," and this is before Manchester by the Sea. You came went in out. pretty cold. Yeah, the only thing I had known is I had read about the tortured production, and I had read that there had been lawsuits, Mm -hmm. and I had an afternoon where I was procrastinating, where I had some work I had to do, but I really didn't want to do it. Now, we should mention there are two cuts of this movie. Yeah, yeah, and you've actually seen both of them. I've only seen one. Which cut did you see? Again? I saw the longer director's cut. That's the one I saw. So. No, I thought you. Well, no, the first one you saw was the shorter director's cut. I think. I think HBO showed the one that's two and a half hours. Really, I thought they showed the longest one. I don't think so. I feel like when we watched the longer one, you were like, "Oh, this is different than the one I saw." Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I love that we're having an argument over that. So I saw even with the director's cut. It's still two and a half hours long. So I popped it on and I was like, you know, this will give me an excuse to procrastinate on my work. And I'm a little curious about a movie that has a Heaven's Gate-esque production history. A little bit, but we'll get into that. Not, not quite the same. So I started watching it and... It absolutely blew my mind. Well, I know you said that within, like, the first five minutes, you were, like, crying. Yes. This movie made me cry many times. I had many cries to this film, Mm -hmm. which I cry a lot in movies, so you could say... (laughs) You're a bit of a crybaby. I am a bit of a crybaby. I cry a lot. I cry a lot about everything. I'm just a (laughs) crybaby in general. But... So... I had multiple cries during this movie, and I remember when I was trying to describe it to you, I just said, this movie is about everything. <laughs> yes, I remember you saying that. And watching the movie, I i mean, I kind of got what you meant in a way. Uh, it's a very dense film. Uh, if, you, if you haven't heard of this movie, Margaret, it stars Anna Paquin, and uh, she's just this, she's this girl living in New York City, and she's walking along one day, and... I think she makes kind of, like, eyes with this bus driver. Yeah. And I don't think she's there when it happens, but the bus driver uh, runs over this woman. Um, oh, she's there. 
when it happens. Oh, 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 okay. Oh, so she sees the accident. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the bu- she sees the bus driver, kind of a little distracted. They have a distracted driving premise, um, and she runs. O- he runs over Allison Janney. Yeah. Who has like this one incredible scene. Yeah. I think that's why it's kind of sad because you see Allison Janney, you think, oh, cool, Allison Janney. Oh my God. And then um, Anna and Paquin Anna Paquin sees Paquin, this. Yeah, it's actually with her. So she walks into the road and is with Allison Janney. When well, did, Allison she Janney, didn't know her, though. No, she didn't know her, but Anna Paquin is there and literally like watches her die. Yeah, she's there as she like slowly dies like after getting hit by this bus. And then the rest of the movie. I mean, it does have a story, but it's not the type of thing where you could describe, okay, here's what happens in this act, and then here's what happens when the the next act starts. It's more of just following her kind of turbulent emotional journey, if that's yeah. the way you could put it, as she's dealing with both the, the fallout from this accident, because, again, she witnessed it, and she has the power to... Uh, kind of say, oh, the bus driver did this or that. Yeah. And Mark Ruffalo, again, is the bus driver. Um, but she's also going through things in her own personal life. Um, I, I believe Matt Damon was a, a teacher in it. Yeah, so it's a coming-of-age movie. So it deals with coming-of-age issues apart from this accident. Yeah. But... Her dealing with the accident is also a consistent through line. So she feels morally conflicted because, A, she feels guilty that she drew the attention of the driver. Yes. She feels guilty that she knows the driver was distracted. Mm-hmm which nobody else knows definitively except for her and the driver. Yeah, they, they, they think that, well, he the driver has his own past with as being a bus driver. You know, if he gets fired, you know, is it going to be her fault? There's also, later on in the movie, there's a lawsuit. Right, right. Yeah, I remember, I remember a couple of scenes where she's in a legal office where it's like, oh, this is really, like, kind of intensive. Yeah, and then we also cover how... You know, there's friction, Anna Paquin, there's friction in the relationship with her mother. Oh, right. Who played her mother in the movie? I don't know. <laughs> That's a pretty important character. I, I can't believe I'm blinking on this. I gotta look her up now, because I'm... I remember her being an important character, but, uh... Um, let, let me just see here for, for a second. Uh... Maybe Jeannie Berlin? I don't know who that is. <laughs> this has like a pretty packed cast though we should mention like you know we mentioned anna paquin matt Damon, mark ruffalo uh matthew broderick is in the movie uh, he was also in you can count on me uh john renault yes. is in this movie from your beloved uh the professional yes playing the mother's boyfriend yeah kieran culkin john gallagher rosemary dewitt um, Kristen Ritter is in this. Wow, it's Shop Girl. Wow, this is yeah, quite a cast in this movie. And I think that to me, the thing about this film is, you kind of have to be on board with who Anna Paquin is. If you're not, it might be a little more difficult to really love the movie because she's a very. Uh, how, how would you describe her? Well, I would say, if you're one of those people that needs the protagonist of your film to be likable in an uncomplicated way, yeah. don't watch this movie. Yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, Anne Paquin is incredible in the film. I think 
I would be interested when I, if I would watch this again because I've I only saw it the once and I as much as I liked Anna Paquin and you know she was doing an incredible job the character of Margaret can be abrasive at times. Yeah, definitely. Well, virtually every character in this movie is prickly. Yeah, that's a way to put it. This is a very prickly movie. It is, but. What I love about this movie is you mentioned it's really dense. What I loved about it is I felt like it was the perfect level of both intellectual and emotional stimulation. It was very operatic, too. That's what I remember about it. It is, at times, like, literally operatic. It feels at times like Kenneth Lonergan is making what I would almost call, like, a city symphony. It's like Yeah, there's a scene at an opera, though. There's a scene at an opera, but there's also scenes where Anna Paquin's just walking around the city, and Kenneth Lonergan's camera will, like, move up and up to show her within, like, the entire city, and this music plays that, um, you know, is really bombastic. Yeah. Um... You know, it's a very, I could see why you love it so much, because it's a highly emotional journey, and yet it has some things on its mind. But it just, what I love about it, too, is it's a pretty talky movie. So, characters have a lot of long, fascinating conversations that kind of dissect Mm -hmm. pretty much every type of important relationship you'll have in your life. Right. So there's like this analysis and dissection of like the parent-child relationship, friend relationships, romantic relationships. So what Lonergan is doing is he's basically taking every type of relationship that a person can have and pretty much every type of pivotal experience a person can have. And he's dissecting it under a microscope. And it's almost like this whole thing with the bus driver killing this person, you know, that that's important as a backdrop, but the movie's not really about that. I mean, I, I should say it is in the sense that, you know, it's, I guess, you know, putting some life and death struggle in there, but it's all, you know, a more conventional movie would have just been about that. Mm. And they wouldn't have had all of the character stuff. They wouldn't have had all of these ideas about, who we are to our parents or our friends, or if we have someone that we have a crush on. Like, I I seem to recall there's kind of like an awkward sort of hitting on scene between Anna Paquin and Matt Damon. Yeah. Um, And, uh, yeah, as I said, the performances are solid. I think that, um, again, and I still love the movie, I might still prefer uh, Manchester by the Sea. That's whack, even though Manchester by the Sea <laughs> is a good movie. A very good movie. Whack. Where are you, from 1991? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Manchester by the Sea is awesome. That Manchester by the Sea is a masterpiece. But that's still whack, because Margaret is... Now, when I said I put it on my top three, like, favorite movies ever, yes. I really think of the three, Margaret is probably the best Mm. But it's not necessarily my favorite. Mm. So if you ask me to, if you put a gun to my head and said, like, what do you think is the best movie you've ever seen? I would probably say Margaret. But that's not the same as saying what's your favorite movie you've ever seen. Right. Now, um, and again, we could also talk about Margaret for a while. But we need to move on to our next movie, the third movie in your top three. 
which is there'll be blood. Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. Well, you will be cast up and thrust back to the position. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. There will be blood, which, as you know, I've always thought of as a metaphorical exploration of the Republican Party. <laughs> and yes, why don't you explain to our lovely listeners what you mean? Okay, so Daniel Plainview and Eli, Eli Sunday. Eli, yeah, um, y- yes, you're e- Eli Sunday. <laughs> you, you're you're suddenly the same actor, but you're the same different character. <laughs> Yeah, now... All right, go in. To put things in perspective, I mentioned it first. I've seen The Nightmare Before Christmas literally hundreds of times. I've seen Margaret... What? Twice. Twice. I've seen There Will Be Blood maybe like five or six times. Yeah. So... That was one of those rare movies you actually saw twice in the theater. Yeah, and I've seen it several times at home. And But the Republican Party. Okay. So Daniel Plainview, I think, represents the real beating heart of the Republican Party. Like, Daniel Plainview is the perfect example of what it means to be a Republican and what Republicans want for this country. Um, they just want to make lots of money. The naked acquisition of wealth at the expense of all other virtues. Yes. And the desire to ruthlessly grind into the dust anyone who is not rich. I look at people and I see nothing worth like <laughs> However, that's not a platform that's sufficiently attractive to a majority of voters, which means you gotta, you've got to find other ways to bring people into the tent. Now, one ah, way to I bring people that. into the tent that... Is not in this movie. Is of course good old fashioned racism. Mm. But, yeah, that racism doesn't come up really in this movie. No, um, because pretty much everyone in this movie is white. So. Yeah, yeah, they don't really deal with that because I think that would have been another element that they just it w- there wouldn't have been enough time. Also, my feminist card feels a little sad that this is my top like my top three movie ever. I mean, there well there Please. are there are female speaking characters, but they have like. Two lines. Because this is such a man movie. There are, are, I don't, I can't think of another movie I've seen that is so, like, depopulated of women. Yes. So, my feminist card feels a little sad about this, that I love this movie <laughs> so much. Well, that's, that's fine. I mean, and... there's been art made by men that have male characters that both men and women have loved for years. I know, but I feel, you know... 
you know how much I'm all about like the girl power. Right. So. But the other part of this, though, with, that involves the Republican Party. Yeah. We got so to mention basically, is... oh, I was gonna say, so Eli Sunday represents how religious people get hoodwinked into supporting yes. the Republican Party, and the uneasy relationship between Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday. Uneasy, putting it mildly. <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> If you mean by uneasy, you mean Daniel Plainview, at his kindest, staring at you with literal daggers popping out of his eyeballs. And, of course, culminating in murder, but... Well, well, not, well we, we don't say who... Well, I guess if you, the movie's been out for a while, yeah. There is nobody murder. listening to a, a film podcast in 2018 who has not seen There Will Be Blood. Yeah, and if you haven't seen There Will Be Blood... What are you doing? Turn off the podcast now and and watch the movie. It's it's so, fucking great. I really feel like the relationship between Eli Sunday and Daniel Plainview is a very good um, metaphorical representation of the relationship between wings of the Republican Party. Yeah, um, and it, and it kind of shows that in the end, big business will win out if as much as religion tries to yeah. take things over, the more craven super capitalist part of it will always win. Yeah, and I know we like to keep the podcast apolitical, but you can probably get a pretty good sense <laughs> of where I stand politically based on my conversation. Gee, I'm not movie. sure I know, Dr. Hughes. <laughs> so, now, I'm not saying that this is something Paul Thomas Anderson deliberately intended it's probably something i read into it with my broken political science brain but i'm really glad that there's this whole other level that being said maybe i should start talking about what's actually in the movie and yeah not well, well it's well it's also because it's a really fantastically put together film that it that it's so incredible because you have paul thomas anderson at the top of his game um you have Daniel Day-Lewis, who, you know, is channeling a little bit of John Huston and a lot of, like, every single prospector in history mm -hmm. in this one character. And it's, again, he's our main character, and he's completely despicable. Like Republicans. Um... <laughs> <gasps> I mean, in this movie. Yeah. Um, but no, um, yeah, talk about the movie. Okay, so what I love about this movie is, again, there's a lot going on thematically, like, it's a very complex movie with very complex characters, and I am just blown away by the sheer largeness of Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. Yeah. I am so... His performance kind of... It's like the mountains that are around him kind of quiver in his presence. And what's funny is, even though Daniel Plainview is a reprehensible person from minute one, he has such charisma mm. that I you have this feeling where you're like, I want to spend every minute of my life just following this person. Yes. Well, you're you're kind of curious what the hell he's gonna do next, and uh, and also it's he's this kind of character who is very set in his ways, but 
the the kind of opposition he gets brings out the bastard in him, and you kind of love seeing it. Yeah, so Daniel Plainview might be my favorite individual character I've ever seen in a movie ever. Wow, that's that's a tall statement. I just feel like... Even if the rest of the movie was mediocre, which it's not. The rest of the movie is great. The sheer majesty of Daniel Day-Lewis's performance would make this a great film. Right. It's absolutely amazing. It's, it's also, it's a different kind of Daniel Day-Lewis we see in a lot of other movies. I mean, I guess the closest you could say maybe is Gangs of New York. But in that, he doesn't have that ideology. He's more of just like a feral man. <laughs> Uh, you know, whereas, you know, you watch, like, this is not the same Daniel Day-Lewis as, like, Phantom Thread. No. It's not. And the, the way, watching, Dan, watching the character of Daniel Plainview simmer and simmer and then explode. Yeah, I mean, that scene where Eli Sunday comes up to him and is like, when do we get our money? And... Plainview is just just smacks the shit out of him over and over again, and yet you're not you know you would think that oh this is a really terrible thing he's doing, but you kind of hate Eli Sunday more. Oh yeah, well the thing is because Eli Sunday is such a little twit. He's a little he's a salamander. Yes, he's such he's a like, salamander. He's a slimy salamander guy who. I feel like, in a way, that's why Paul Thomas Anderson, he originally didn't cast Paul Dano as Eli Sunday. He had, like, he was originally just supposed to play, like, the younger brother, who for some reason pops up in that one scene and then is never seen again. <laughs> that's the one weird part of the movie. But I think that he recognized that if you have someone as gigantic as Daniel Day-Lewis in his performance, you need someone who is really good but doing something different. And so the opposition in the film is not just ideologically, it's also physically. Yeah. You know, Paul Dano is not a very big man. He's very slender and very... He's meek until he tries to put on his performance. Yeah, and you're right. I think they are a great, like... I think they're a great pair. And you're right, there's something like weaselly and whiny and weak and other W words about Paul Dano. So they're also like contrasting two very different forms of like masculine presentation. Cause even though Daniel Day Lewis is a scarecrow, so he's not like, he's really tall, but he's really skinny. Mm -hmm. So he's not like super physically imposing. If you were just looking at his body in isolation, because his personality is so big. He's super, he's super imposing. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm almost surprised in that scene where Eli Sunday is kind of forcing Daniel Day-Lewis to, you know, come to his come to Jesus scene um, in the church. I'm surprised that when he doesn't start doing, I abandoned my child. <laughs> I'm surprised everyone in the watching it didn't go like, ah, then cut to a shot of them all going. Ugh. And we should mention because we're timely and relevant people, we still quote certain lines from this movie to each other with regularity. Yeah, well, it's a kind of a quotable movie in some ways, you know. And well, we're not... I don't mean just "I drink your milkshake." Yeah, like, that's the that's the one that everyone knows. Yeah, but we often say to each other, like, "I, you are my competitor," or 
you're a bastard from a, a basket, basket in the middle of the desert. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that bastard from a basket. And the way that he says that in the scene is amazing. Um, yeah, there's some quotable lines in the movie. Not like the traditional quotable movie lines, but yeah, just a couple of things that we kind of remember. Uh. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and also the music is really oh, great. Oh, the music is amazing. I am so glad that Johnny Greenwood was detached from the cancer that is Radiohead <laughs> to actually make real... Radiohead's not cancer. To ma- actually make good music. <laughs> <laughs> the way to cinema does not think Radiohead's a cancer. This well, is only the opinion of Corey. Half of the wages of cinema thinks Radiohead is a cancer, and half is not all right um yeah i mean this is the one that nobody really knew he was a composer before this movie and so mm-hmm. it, it the fact that this didn't win best original score at the oscars is kind of a travesty yeah um he still doesn't have an oscar he really should have gotten it for phantom thread too and that's i know we talked probably about that before i was actually i love there will be blood so much part of me was a little worried it would ruin me for Paul Thomas Anderson from now on because I would spend the rest of my life saying, yeah, your movies are good, but there no There Will Be Blood. Yeah, well, Which, you, you, well, you've, well, the three movies he's put out since There Will Be Blood, you've, you've said that once. You said that with Inherent Vice. But The Master and Phantom Thread, I, I think you said were almost up there quality-wise. Well, I definitely like Phantom Thread more than The Master. Um, even though I like the master a lot. So I was pretty happy with the master, but if I'm being honest, I definitely had like a scene or two when I was watching it and I was like, this is good, but this is no, this is no, there will be blood. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of like, it's almost like if, if, you know, uh, you have the, oh man, I'm blanking on the artist's name. Oh, uh, who made Guernica? Picasso. Fuck. I, wow, how did I forget that for a that second? That is literally like the only art fact I know. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I can't even um, believe I well, know. Well, anyway, it's like if, again, if Picasso made Guernica, and then, you know, you look at the paintings he made after that, and you're like, well, it's fine. There's, there's no Guernica. <laughs> it's kind of like that attitude. Um, but yeah, There Will Be Blood is quite amazing. Uh, one thing, one last thing I want to mention, you've told me at times that you almost, you don't really do this with other movies, but for some reason, There Will Be Blood, you can picture scenes visually from that movie in your head. Yes, that's true. Now, as Jack has pointed out, I'm not the most visual person in the world, and I'm someone who struggles at times to picture things in my mind Mm -hmm. like when i i don't visualize things a lot in my head so a lot of times like if i asked you you're a much more visual thinker than i am maybe so i feel like you picture things in your mind well i I just see so many movies that i can't help but but see it that way i know this sounds weird Sometimes when I visualize my thoughts, I visualize them as text, not as pictures. (laughs) I don't do that. So sometimes I see my own thoughts in my head, but they're running almost like a stock ticker where, like, I just picture the text of my thoughts. Wow. I know. I'm a weirdo. You don't also, you don't really think about, like, 
hearing certain like voices or sounds sometimes but it's not that like i never visualize things but it's not something i do regularly what do you think of the visuals and there'll be blood why does that stick out for you i think it's because they they're such um they're very stark and they're such a good reflection of the internal emotional life of the characters. Yeah, well, it's it's like Dale Plainview is this character who's kind of completely desolated his soul. And he's out there in basically like the barren wasteland trying to get oil. And it's like all the ba- the backdrop is very like, it's, a, it's kind of deserty, but it's not. So, I feel like the reason why the visuals resonate so much with me is because the visuals are such a good um, representation of the character's souls. So, I basically transfer the emotional feelings I have about the characters to the visuals. I gotcha. And it's relatively unusual for me because usually when I reflect back on movies I love, I usually don't see them in my head clearly. Right. Like I do with There Will Be Blood. Okay. That was the last thing I wanted to ask you about. So now I want to get to the other two movies. Well, there'll be more than two, technically, um, in your top five. Um, Husbands and Wives. Before we go out to dinner, we want to tell you something. Are you okay? Jack, Jack and I are splitting up. Don't do me a favor. Don't make a big deal out of it, okay? Because we're both fine. Are you we're okay. Serious? No, we are. We're fine. We're How fine. How can you get it? Uh, you know, break up. It's insane. You're you Jack and Sally. You got two kids. So Jack never never gave you an inkling, huh? No. How did you meet someone so fast? Well, I used to eat red meat every day, and then I gave it up, and then I had some again recently, and Look, I, I was can, totally blown. I can't. Get my mind around this. This is what you leave Sally for? It's like your IQ is suddenly in oh, remission. Oh, you know? Are you ever attracted to other women? So how do you manage to write something so deep? I, is your whole family stormy and tempestuous? Or? Oh, God, I'm blushing, right? I thought it was an, it was an experiment. I, I didn't think it was final. I didn't realize you were having an affair! Listen, if you're having some kind of personal thing... Really? I'm okay. I, I, I don't really think I can do this. I, I'm feeling upset. What are you upset about? This was the one that you ultimately picked as uh, your favorite Woody Allen movie. Yeah, so as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, the top three was not that difficult for me to come up with. But four and five were real bare. Yeah, I had to kind of like help you like pour over my favorite movies list. Yeah. And then you kind of like were trying to pick out, well, maybe this, no. And the reason why I picked Husbands and Wives It's my favorite Woody Allen movie, and I know this is controversial to say in 2018 because he's such a scumbag, but (sighs) Woody Allen fandom is, like, a very big part of my overall movie fandom. Like, Woody Allen is very important to me as an artist, so... Mm. His movies are very important to me. Well, well, it was... Well, I remember getting... When we were uh, kind of in our early courtship, you know, watching lots of Woody Allen movies was a good way to spend time. Yeah, and basically, I just love Woody Allen so much that I felt like my top five list had to represent Woody Allen because he is so important to me as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, okay, Woody Allen's got to be on this list because he 
because um, I love Woody Allen so much. Husbands and Wives is my favorite Woody Allen movie. Now, I feel a little weird about that because... Because you could pick probably a number of other films from him. He has several other movies that I love so much and I think are so great. And I feel like part of me feels like I should have picked a movie that was a more even balance of comedic and dramatic elements. Yeah. Because Woody Allen is both such a good comedian and such a good dramatist. Mm -hmm. So part of me thought I should have picked a movie that's a little more um, mixed. Yeah, I mean, well, this movie is more leaning on the drama side. Mm. There are some scenes that are funny, but they're not in the way that, like, in Annie Hall or or even, uh, like, Hannah and Her Sisters, where you have, like, real, the Woody Allen persona. Here, the Woody Allen persona is pretty serious. So, if there's anything that's funny in the movie, it's probably Judy Davis. She's very funny in the I still think one of those scenes I think about often is when she's going through the list of people in her mind and calling them foxes or hedgehogs. That's a funny scene. I also think about the scene where... She's broken up with her husband, uh, played by Sidney Pollock, and she brings this other guy home, uh, you know, for a date. Uh, but, like, before they go out, she's, like, on the phone with uh, Sidney Pollock and just, like, raging at him. And then comes back in the living room, and the guy's like, well, I don't know what I should do here. <laughs> and she just, like, is flipping out at him, and... It's it's the type of scene that is funny, almost more in like a Curb Your Enthusiasm sort of way. You know, the more we talk about this movie, the more happy I am that I did decide to put it on my top five. There you go. I'm really glad, because I was, <clears throat> when I put it on my list, I was kind of like, I don't know. I really don't know if this is a top five. But now five. you're kind of remembering scenes from it. But now I'm cycling through in my head all the amazing scenes. Yeah, and it, it's really potent film and really insightful about just how both men and women are really messed up in certain relationships. Yeah, I really, as you know, and this is something that you and I share, I love, like, a twisty relationship drama. Yeah. I love that stuff. So, give me some, you know, complicated, kind of trash people, um screwing up romantic relationships mm -hmm. and i am here for it all day every day yeah and that's kind of what you're getting here. well the thing that's also fascinating and this also connects a little bit with our love for bergman movies is you have these characters who are very highly intellectual like they can function pretty well in society when it comes to dealing with matters of the intellect with things that involve like you know, like when they say left brain, light, right yeah. brain, that type of separation. But then when it comes to relationships, like, well, Woody Allen in real life once said, well, the heart wants what it wants, which yeah. is a little bit of a creepy thing when you think about Sun Yi. But putting that aside, um, as, again, as a creator, looking at the art itself, you get, you know, a lot of insight into it. Now, again, I don't know if that's just from his own personal life or if that's just from him observing life in general, but it makes for really good drama. Oh, because you mentioned it, I want to mention briefly why there are no Bergman movies on my list. Okay. Okay. So when you and I first got together, yeah. you wooed me 
like a man does with many Ingmar Bergman movies. I, I opened up my zipper and pulled out an Ingmar Bergman DVD. <laughs> <laughs> and in the first year or two of our relationship, we watched many Bergman movies together. And I really loved a lot of them. Mm-hmm. However, I feel like Bergman movies, a lot of them, Mm-hmm. Not all of them, but because they're so heavy, don't have the rewatchability that other movies on this list have. Maybe you're right. So for me personally, for a movie to make it on my list, I don't just have to, you know, respect it. And I don't just have to respect its like it, the craft. Yes. I have to be, it has to be a movie I'm in the mood to watch. Right. Like regularly. <laughs> Excuse me. So, most of the Bergman movies we watched together in, like, 2005, 2006, 2007, I've only seen once. Right. And now, by 2018... In other words, if we had done this podcast, like, 10 years ago, your list might have looked a little different. Yeah, and now, by 2018, my memory of a lot of these films is very faded. It's fine. And Whereas the Woody Allen, I think, stuck a little bit more with Yeah, you. and I'm not in the mood to rewatch. Any of these. Well, how can you with all those Lifetime movies on? (laughs) (laughs) You gotta watch Stuck by My Doctor 3. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Husbands and Wives, though, I should also mention that I think the performances in the movie are really excellent. Yeah. Uh, Again, we mentioned Judy Davis, but... um, I, you know, I like Sidney Pollack on screen, like, in movies. Like, he, you know, is mostly known as a director, but when he pops up in stuff as an actor... I think I re- I think he's a terrific actor. Like in uh, Tootsie, and also Eyes Wide Shut. His scenes in that are really amazing. And Michael Clayton, he popped up in that movie too. Um, Juliette Lewis is really good in the movie. Yeah. So the performances are amazing. The commentary about the difficulties of marriage and long-term relationships. Even the style is really interesting because it's a very jagged like documentary type approach yeah and that kind of helps i think reflect the turmoil of the characters so i am general i'm a huge huge woody allen fan and husbands and wives i think is woody allen at the absolute peak of his powers i think it's amazing and i feel a little bad about that but i can't no no look we we could have a whole other conversation about you know people who may or may not be good people but again we have the art in front of us and we should you know I can't change my relationship to the art and Yeah and also it's you can't change how you felt about a movie um based yeah. on things that come up like that I guess the reason why I feel guilty about it is cuz I also feel like frankly some of Woody Allen's personal creepiness does leak into his movies sometimes So I think that's why I feel guilty, is he has enough movies, like, fetishizing relationships with very large age gaps and the like, that I feel a little creepy about how much I like his movies. Right. But I can't change who I am and how I I respond. No, that's that's a very fair answer, and I feel the same way. I mean, I, uh, you know, I'll I'll still see his movies. Uh, You know, I think that... If you know again, looking at just the art itself, not looking at the man, um, 
you you can get a lot out of his movies, in particular, uh, like Crimes and Misdemeanors. Um, now, uh, bef- now this is the last movie in your top five, which is really three movies. Yeah, because I'm we cheating. need. To, yeah, because you couldn't decide on one. If I were making this list, I would probably just put one movie from it, even though I love all three. All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just going to haunt me the rest of my life. I have no idea what your situation is, but I feel like we have some kind of uh, connection, right? Yeah, me too. Great. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. We just got into Vienna today, and we're looking for something fun to do. Sprechen Sie English? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Can we speak German for a change? Now I'm going to call my best friend in Paris, who I'm supposed to have lunch with in eight hours. Okay. Okay. Ring, ring. Pick up the phone. Uh, hello? I don't think I'm going to be able to make it for lunch today. I'm sorry. I met a guy on the train, and I got off with him in Vienna. We're still there. Are you crazy? Probably. Let's talk about the Before trilogy. Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, and Before Midnight. So which one of these three movies would you choose if you could only pick one? Before Midnight. Yeah, it's really it's, it's, and it's tough because I do love all three. I think my ranking when I was when I first saw Before Sunset, I still liked it. I don't know if I loved it as much as the Before Sunrise actually, uh. but when I watched it again, I actually loved it a little more. Like I got a little bit more out of it. But something about Before Midnight feels like a real culmination of all yeah. three movies. Um and we should know, like, if you haven't heard of these, I mean, the Before trilogy, it's Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, uh, directed by Richard Linklater. Uh, each movie is separated by nine years, and we're just, you know, the first movie is guy and girl meet on a train, decide to hop, you know, get off in Vienna. They walk around the city all night and have a real emotional connection. Uh, then before sunset, they somehow meet up again, even though they said, we'll meet up again, you know, very soon after this. And they and don't. They, and they didn't. So the movie's in part about that, but it's also just their observations. And that's that's the thing you could say about this. Everything is just natural conversation. Yeah, and what I love about the before movies is how simultaneously they're, like, authentic and inauthentic. At the same time. And here's what I mean. They feel authentic. When you're watching them, Mm -hmm. you say to yourself, wow, this feels like a very natural, um, plausible, organic conversation between two people. So it feels very realistic. However, in real life, listening to people talk is boring. She Mm -hmm. says on the podcast. (laughs) So, in real life, most people are inauthentic and in not inauthentic. No, no, I, I inarticulate. No, well, no, what you're thinking of is movie dialogue is often stylized in a certain way. It's it's kind of like how people talk, but it's not exactly yeah. how and people frankly, talk. That's Link, how it has to whereas be. Linklater tries to get a, like a kind of dialogue between characters. And also, you know, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy write these movies with him. They try to get how people actually talk in a natural conversation. And it's always it's not always about something that has to do with the plot. Sometimes in real life, you just talk about shit. 
Well, it feels very real, even though I know in real life, most people have conversations that are duller and less articulate than the conversations um, that that the characters are actually having. I think the reason why you asked me why Before Midnight might be my favorite, I think it's because... That's the one where they you get those scenes where the two characters are just walking around and and talking about life and philosophies and things like that or, or whatever. Um, but there's also that gigantic sequence in the last 15 minutes of the movie where you get what feels like the most authentic marriage fight I've ever seen. Yes. So. Um, and so it's that. Then all of a sudden, it's a movie that gives me everything I want in a movie because I get really natural characters, but I also get real drama. It's amazing. So I love how these conversations feel totally real, even though they're also elevated beyond normal conversations. Most people are boring and most people have conversations about like, what did you do at work? What do you want for dinner? Why does my toe hurt? Yeah, or uh, you know, my or there's there's a point in the movie like, you know, Ethan Hawke uh, gets like a text message and finds out, oh, my grandfather died. That becomes like five minutes of the movie, but it's not like that is something that changes him. They're just talking about, yeah, my grandfather died. Yeah, he was really old. Yeah, you know, the, 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 it happened. He, we had a life. It's like, and it shouldn't be interesting in a way, uh. it, but it is because. The writing is really compelling. You really believe these two are connected together. You also believe that they are very opinionated, strong personalities, especially Julie Delphi. Yeah, and their their type of relationship is honestly not the type of relationship I would want for myself. Right. Because it's a little too, like, high-octane for me. (laughs) Yeah. And... It's not my personal romantic ideal, but it feels like an incredibly um, well-written relationship. It feels true. Yeah. And and, a lot of times in movies, it's hard to get truth because maybe the plot might get in the way. Maybe somebody like Tyler Perry might get in the way. (laughs) (laughs) But... um... We're going to have more Tyler Perry for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're gonna, let, let's tease that now. There's going to be another episode about other Tyler we Perry We watched movies. Why Did I Get Married and Why Did I Get Married too? A.K.A. And... Why Did I Do This Podcast? <laughs> and we have thoughts. Thoughts, spelled T-H-O-T-S. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, if you, if you love cinema and you haven't seen the before movies, I, I strongly recommend that you check these out. Um, it's especially interesting too, when you have, again, you're seeing like all these years separating the characters. Um, and so you can kind of go on this real emotional journey because you're seeing how they kind of grow or don't grow, (laughs) I should say. Um, all right. So that's, that's my top five or seven. Uh, Yes, (laughs) that's my top seven. But yeah, we'll count the before trilogy as one movie. We'll, we'll do that as our way of, like, that's your Lord of the Rings. Huh. Um, now, just to run down some honorable mentions, uh, and we'll talk a little more briefly about these. Eternal Sunshine 
is also in your favorites. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is an honorable mention for me, and it's something I considered putting in the top five. And again, I thought it was a super creative premise. I thought the acting was amazing. I thought it was a great relationship drama. The execution is everything in that movie, and Michelle Gondry... Joel and Clementine have such... A fascinating relationship to me. Yeah. And what's fascinating, too, in the movie is that you're seeing the relationship. Th- it's it's probably... I know you, you you know the word nonlinear narrative sometimes gets tossed mm-hmm. around. This is the most nonlinear narrative ever. Because you're literally going through memories. Yeah. And I love how Gondry shoots... Like, inserting the characters into the memories. Yes. And another strength, I think, of this movie is that I've completely changed how I've interpreted the ending over time. Yes. And I still love the movie just as much. Yeah, we, we've talked about this before, but say what you mean, though. Okay. So, the very first time I saw this movie, I saw it in the movie theater with um the guy I was dating before you. That's so, fine. And... I when I I interpreted the end of the movie as thinking that Joel and Clementine will get back together and their relationship will work. So they'll get back together and their relationship will work and they'll, you know, live happily ever after. That's how I interpreted the movie. However, now I interpret the movie as Joel and Clementine's problems are unfixable and if they get back together, they're just going to break up again. Well, or they'll get break they'll get back together and just be totally miserable. Yeah, so now I actually don't believe that they're a good couple who should stay together. And I feel like my change in interpretation of the film is frankly informed by the breakup I had with the guy I dated before you mm-hmm. where we were going to break up and then we decided not to, and then six months later, we broke up again for the same reasons that we would have broken up six, mm. four, six months ago. Yeah, and I think that that also taps into a truth in the movie, which is sometimes you just don't know. I mean, uh, again, in the movie, Clementine is the one who gets her memory erased first. You yeah. Know? So that's like what kind of dr- makes Joel do it. You know, she is the one who, you know, she's at the bookstore and he comes in. She's like, can I help you? And they've been dating for so long, and it's just like, you feel like his heart, like, ripped out of his chest. And what's interesting, too, also, is that Jim Carrey in this movie, you know, very different Jim Carrey than what we saw in the 90s. I feel like this kind of capped a kind of uh, really great period of movies from Jim Carrey, though. You know, starting with The Truman Show. Yeah. Which, actually, I totally adored The Truman Show, when it came out as well. You probably would have put that in like your honorable mentions. Yes. The Truman Show is another honorable mentions movie. Which I didn't even write down. Yeah, because I absolutely love The Truman Show. I think it's amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, just to run down a couple more movies, though. Uh, you said you had to put Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Yes. I had to put The Hand That Rocks the Cradle on my honorable <laughs> mention for the greatest films of all time. Yes, the movie where Ernie Hudson gives his breakout performance as the as the <laughs> mentally challenged uh, uh, handyman. <laughs> I, if we're 
for just charting like the sheer pleasure a movie has given me. Right. The hand that rocks the cradle is near the top. There was a time several years ago when this movie was on TV all the time. Like it was on HBO and Showtime. You know when like the yeah. premium channels I within the space of about six months, several years ago. I watched The Hand That Rocks the Cradle seven or eight times in, like, six months. I've seen it once, and I feel like I'm good. <laughs> I just... No, I, I, I kind of enjoy the movie as it's in a trashy way. This is also kind of a stand-in pick. So, like, I picked Husbands and Wives to kind of represent how important Woody Allen movies are to me as a filmgoer. I picked The Hand That Rocks the Cradle because... I absolutely love movies like this. Movies yes. in this genre. And it's, it, you know, we should mention, too, that this actually has an acclaimed director in front of it. This isn't just some hack. This was actually directed by Curtis Hansen, who did uh, L.A. Confidential and, and Wonder Boys. This is kind of the best possible version of a movie where... Someone that you've allowed into your family or your peer group is secretly plotting against you genre. I love these movies. Yeah. Like, that basic setup is total catnip to me. I love it. And this one also involves a baby. Yeah, so I love... I thought you were my friend, but you were steaming against me the whole time. I thought, you know... Oh, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. But... Yeah. Um, what elevates this movie is I feel like the best representative of this particular genre is that the acting is really high-powered. Um, yeah, I mean, there are real performances. Again, Ernie Hudson. <laughs> That's like the weirdest shit to me. But the thing is, I, I felt such a strong, like... I almost cried when Rebecca De Mornay gets Ernie Hudson out of the scene by framing him for child molestation. Which oh is a yeah! Thing that in this oh movie. god! Oh, I remember that. Right. And... Uh, yeah, Annabelle Ciora, man, like she's that. Uh, you know, she she's actually one of the actresses who, um, if my memory serves, she was one of the ones that got a little bit tarnished. Because of Weinstein? Yeah, she's one of the people who Harvey Weinstein destroyed her career after... I don't remember what level of sexual impropriety he engaged in with her. Yeah. But Annabella Ciora is one of the women who was abused and then kind of destroyed by Harvey which is, Weinstein. Which is a shame because she's, you know, a really talented actress. She's and, awesome in this movie. Yeah. You know who's in this movie? Julianne Moore. And she's amazing in it. I I know you made fun of me for putting this movie on my honorable mentions for favorite movies <laughs> ever. And I will continue ever. to do so. But as we're talking about it and as I'm reflecting about, like, Julianne Moore <laughs> biting it in that greenhouse. Oh, right, right. Um, I am so glad that I chose this movie. <laughs> and I also feel like... It's probably good for the entertainment value of the podcast that I have at least one movie on my list that would not be on your list. That's that's a fair point. That's actually a very fair point. Because... Um, yeah, because a lot of the other movies that, again, your honorable mentions, movies like Network and Goodfellas, Zodiac, There Will Be... Uh, no, There Will Be Blood, Do the Right Thing. These are highly acclaimed you know, classic movies. And a lot of the movies, too, are movies you really love. But no, I throw down for The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is one of my favorite movies ever made. And, and that's fine. 
It's fun. I wish we had more movies like this. Unfortunately, I feel like movies of this type have really migrated to television now. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, well, you still get some that are theatrically released, but when you see them, you think, oh, that should have been on TV. But I love this movie so much. Yeah, and also, here's another interesting thing about it. A woman wrote the movie, too. And I want to watch this movie right now. (laughs) Uh, But again, just quickly running down some of your other honorable mentions. We mentioned uh, Goodfellas, which, as you know, is sometimes my pick for a favorite movie of all time. So Goodfellas is your gun-to-your-head favorite movie of all time. Yeah, no, no pun intended. I love it, and... I love it enough that I would put it on my honorable mention. And that could also be the movie that represents Scorsese's career, too. Exactly, because I'm a big Scorsese fan. Again, mostly due to you. Um, yes, I'm glad I was able to whip my apprentice into shape. <laughs> so this is a stand-in for how I feel about Scorsese movies in general, because I feel like you know this is the perfect representative of all that he's capable of as an artist. If I was like on a desert island, I could have Goodfellas and Silence, and I'd be pretty happy. Wow, yes, yeah, Silence is the one that you know. I love that movie too, but I'm. Yes, Silence is the actual rare Scorsese film that I actually like more than you. Possibly. And I, and I love Silence, too. I, I just think you really... Like, that was your movie of the year. It was my year. film of the year. I, like... I want to... Oh, Silence. Amazing. But um, let's talk about a couple other ones. No Country for Old Men, which was the other movie in 2007 that... Like, it, that and There Will Be Blood were kind of lumped together yeah. in a good reason because they're two of the best movies ever made. So No Country for Old Men is on my honorable mention. And I'm going to reignite for the purposes of the podcast an argument you and I have been having about this movie for 10 years. Have we? It's an argument I've been having with multiple people. Nobody agrees with me about this. Harvey Bardem, best actor, not best supporting actor. Anton Chigurh is a leading role. I still disagree. I think that that movie has three leading roles in the movie. Who? Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, and Javier Bardem. Tommy Lee Jones is not a lead in that movie. That's, he technically is. That's it's kind of his movie. No, at the it's end. not. That's crazy. Um, well, it's his movie in the way that, like, Apocalypse Now is kind of Marlon Brando's movie. He's not in the movie that much, but he's, like, the focal point. Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem are the co protagonists of this movie. I have had this argument with about five different people. Nobody agrees with me, but I don't care. I am so convinced of my own rightness that no one is going to budge me. Yeah. Well,. You could say it's like the flip side of Hannibal Lecter is really the supporting character, not the lead male in Sons of the Lambs. So. You know, the, these things get quant- these things get changed based on, you know, if you think about if Javier Bardem had been put as a best actor, he would have lost to Daniel Day-Lewis. Yeah, so I understand the strategic reason why he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but to me, No Country for Old Men is the story of Anton Chigurh more than it's the story of anyone else. I think it's more his story than even Josh Brolin's story. Yes. I I guess so. Uh, Zodiac. Let's talk about that one. So, okay. And... Big David Fincher fan. Yeah, this I'm almost surprised Seven wasn't in your top five. 
if you had um, asked me this much earlier in my life, it would have been. Yeah. If you had, like, called me up in high school, mm-hmm. seven would have been on my list. But no, I'm picking Zodiac as my, like, David Fincher. And, and you can also, by the way, go back and listen to our podcast about Seven, which is a movie that our former co-host Andrew really loves. Um, yeah, Zodiac, what, what I love about that movie so much, God, the top three movies of 2007 were just fucking great. Um, it's it, it takes a procedural story and makes it so intense and, and so involving. It's like, because that movie is just all basically a procedural. The scene where Jake Gyllenhaal is in the basement yeah, is the most tense I've probably ever been in a movie. It's a very tense scene. I don't know if it's the most tense, but it's an extremely, it's a moment where you're like, oh God. Yeah, I feel like Zodiac in some ways is a kind of cliched movie. This whole, I am obsessed by my quest. Yeah. To catch the Zodiac Killer, this obsession, you know, spills into my personal life. And so this idea of, like, the protagonist going on an obsessive quest for truth is a very, you know, could have been a very cliched story. I think what helps it, though, is that Fincher's style is complements that obsessiveness because he has an obsessive attention to detail. Yeah. And isn't this the beginning of when we started hearing about David Fincher, Mr. 100 Takes for Everything? Yeah, well, I think it was because this was the first movie he shot on a digital camera. Like, it's ever since then he shot on Reds. This one, I think, was shot on what's called a Viper camera. And when you do that, you don't have to worry about, you know, how much film stock you're burning up. You just can shoot and shoot and do as many takes as you want. So, uh... I think that maybe that's what made people who did a lot of takes back in the day when you had film a bit more notorious because you were, you know, you're burning up money. Whereas uh, if you're shooting on digital, you're burning up time. Not so much. Well, maybe you are burning up money because you're, you know, I imagine his shooting schedules must be like super long. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I love the movie too. I really like uh, Mark Ruffalo and how, his character is a good contrast uh, and helps kind of balance out how Jake Gyllenhaal has this kind of like naivete in it and Robert Downey Jr. is the, you know, salty reporter. If you think about it, there are a lot of cliches in the movie, yeah. but they're used, it's like Fincher finds the truth in the cliches, Yeah, that's if that a makes sense. Yeah, way of framing it. Yeah. Um, God, I remember when Robert Downey Jr. did like non-Iron Man movies. <laughs> Isn't that weird? It's like 11 years ago and it feels like a lifetime. Um, and lastly, uh, Do the Right Thing. Yeah, so I put Do the Right Thing as my final honorable mention yeah, movie. I mentioned also Network, uh, and it's hard not to talk about that movie for at length. Um, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave Network for another time. I want to watch Network again before we talk about it. Okay, that's fair. So it's network is the kind of movie though. I feel like if I watch that now, I might almost cry more than I laugh because I remember (laughs) the strength of my initial response to network. Yeah. I remember seeing it with you and gushing over it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that too, but I haven't seen the movie in such a long time and I've only seen it once. Corey, you will atone. (laughs) 
right. So but, I don't want to talk. But about do the right it. thing, which you also haven't seen in a while, though. That's though a very that you can remember that movie vividly. Yeah. Well, I've also I've seen Do the Right Thing multiple times. Okay. Oh, you've seen it other times too. Yeah, I've TV seen it. I've seen it like three times, maybe beginning to end. Yeah, what's I I I, watch, I show this movie to my students uh, every once in a while, and it it's a perfect movie for a classroom because it you can't not discuss the movie. Yeah, it 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 it, it, it gives you so much that you can chew over this entire. I'm going to use a word that is so bad, like critically speaking, like you're going to almost want to smack me for using this. It's it's a rich tapestry of Bed-Stuy characters. Yeah, and I'm glad I did not see this movie. I'm actually, as much as I love it, I'm glad I did not see it until I was an adult. Because I don't know if I could have fully handled this movie when I was like in high school. When you say you couldn't have handled it, what do you mean? I mean that I was not the most woke person in the world. Uh, well, yeah, well, I was going to say, you kind of met, like, your first black person in college. So, I feel like I would not have been, I would not have been as, rece- as receptive to the political commentary yeah. when I was living in my cow town where literally every single person I interacted with was white. Yeah. And people who were not white were literally, like, people that only existed on TV to me. Yes. So... When I was living in my super rural small town where, you know, my high school was like near a cornfield and everyone was. And you could go like, you could go pet, you could go pet cows like during lunchtime. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think I had the tools to fully appreciate everything Mm. Spike Lee was doing. That's fair enough. Until... I became an adult, and I yeah. had more life experiences, yeah. and I had more diverse life experiences. Yeah, I was a little different. I mean, I saw it in high school, but then I grew up in the exact opposite. I grew up in a neighborhood that was very diverse, and, you know, I, I, I could relate to the movie in a lot of ways, too. Um, it brings up a lot of things that still matter very much today. Like, I feel like this was prob- this had to have been maybe the first movie that... This came out in 1989, and they talk about gentrification. Yeah, and it feels so timely. And actually, I'm a little depressed that a movie like Do the Right Thing feels a lot more timely than, like, the She's Gotta Have It TV show. <laughs> yeah. And You can listen to our conversation about that I mean, a couple episodes back. Tell me you don't think about Radio Rahim all the time. You can't not think about it. In yeah. 2018. He's like the representation of you know so many you know people who are just needlessly horrifically taken down by the the pigs so i know like rich tapestry is a corny phrase i know but it, it really is. is the best phrase i know i couldn't think of a better one it was like i might as well have just said this is the quintessential movie about Bed-Stuy. Um, yeah, so again, this movie is just a um, really wonderful look at, again, just one day in the life of characters in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Uh, you know, again, you have your main character, Mookie, who uh, 
you know, he, he's like very like uh, very determined type of character, and uh, and he's in really good opposition against like the people in the pizza shop. It's just you know, you, yeah, you watch this movie and it it you you talk about how um, Nightmare Before Christmas was the kind of movie where every character could have been their movie. I feel like that's kind of that's thing, do the right thing. for do the right thing. It's such a strong ensemble where I care so much about so many of these people. Yeah. And just like the depth that you get, like Demare, you think at first he's just like the shiftless drunk and yet he has his own history. Uh-huh. And, um... and again, like I said with The Nightmare Before Christmas, I can understand why every person in this movie, no matter how potentially terrible i can understand why they all see themselves as the hero of their own personal story yeah we're not even so much the hero of their story just how why they're functioning the way they do yeah. and how they see the world like even uh Vito, i think is the uh john Turturro character uh. you know he's probably the most despicable one of the most despicable characters in the movie, but you completely understand why he thinks the way he does. Yeah, I totally get where everyone is coming from in this movie. Exactly. Um, all right, so I think that might actually wrap it up for now um, as far as our conversation about these movies. Um, if you agree or disagree with things Corey has said uh, or that I've said, that we've said together, um, you know, because we've had a lot of opinions, um... You can reach us at thewagesofcinema at gmail.com, uh, also on Facebook and Twitter. Um, when we come back next time, uh, we're just going to re- review a little movie that Marvel's putting out. Yeah, a tiny little indie. Yeah, they, they, they like to do that. They like to put out these little indie movies. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Until next time, I'm Jack. I'm Corey. And The Wages of Cinema is death. Have Hugs. Yeah, we should change it. They're death hugs. (laughs) Have a good day.